Now I'm the reason why you broke up with him and got back together. Thought I was sunshine, but baby, I'm bad weather. I'm off the Doppler in the five-day forecast. By the time they hear me, I've already pushed the shore back. No, no, I wasn't always like this. Skies cleared soon as my daylight lit. Sidewalks dried up, no snow emergency. I could take you February and turn it into spring. I get gone, I get gone, and I don't need anyone to know better. Put your faith in And welcome to Weather Hype. Today we're joined by Robert Presley, an associate scientist at NCAR and a recently graduated grad student from the University of Kentucky. It's great to be with you guys. Hi, Robert. Yeah, thanks for being on, Robert. Um, we have an exciting episode to talk about, and I know Castle had listened to your talk and read some of your research, and so he brought this to our attention, and I thought it would be a really cool opportunity to really dive into your research. So, Castle, you want to kind of take us off and see where we go? Sure, that sounds good. Um, so, yeah, like Min said, I, I can't remember when we saw <laughs> or when I saw your presentation, maybe two AMSs ago? Yeah, Is it was 2019. Correct? Yes, 2019. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of, I knew you were on my, you were starred on my agenda because I knew I wanted <laughs> to see it. Um, and as I approached the room from another room, there was just standing room only. And I was like, oh man, that must be good. If there's only standing room only. <laughs> yeah, that was a little intimidating. <laughs> yeah, it was great. But the premise of the the presentation, and we'll definitely let you go into it more in depth, but just to kind of kick us off, from what I took away from it was basically uh, trying to better understand how broadcast meteorologists communicate to mm-hmm. their audiences. So, and I think more specifically, like the types of language that they use and the kind of the strategies they use in order to convey risk. And you looked at a specific case of Hurricane Harvey, right? So maybe Correct, tell us yeah. a little bit about just kind of like the general overview um, kind of like a high-level uh, introduction to kind of your research and maybe why you got into it. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to sort of focus on broadcast meteorologists as weather communicators because I feel like there has not been a whole lot of literature on the way that broadcast meteorologists communicate during these sorts of high-impact weather events. Um, and so we looked at the specific case of Hurricane Harvey and specifically at KHOU, which is the CBS affiliate in the Houston metro area. And we, we sort of ended up with KHOU just because that's what we could find on YouTube. <laughs> so it was sort of a convenient sample, but it turned out to be a really interesting case uh, because their studio actually ended up flooding. And so that sort of presented a totally unique set of communication challenges um, as these broadcasters were sort of faced with the storm itself as they had to uh, deal with the storm impacting them personally. So yeah, it was it was a very interesting case and the language that they used certainly reflected sort of the uniqueness of it. But um, yeah, so we sort of combed through, we had about 24 hours worth of live broadcast data um, beginning the morning before the main impact in the Houston area and continuing until they went off air because their studio flooded. <laughs> um, and so we got a, a really nice sort of time graph of the storm and uh, of the way that their communication changed over the course of it. And so in terms of sort of what we ended up focusing on, uh, we were sort of looking for we used more of a qualitative approach to try to understand what was in this data. Uh, and what ended up sticking out to, to us was the way that they used figurative language to frame the event. So for instance, they relied on a couple of 
overarching metaphors to describe Harvey. Um, One of those was describing it as like this horrifying monster. (laughs) The other way was to describe it as, um, (laughs) as uh, sort of like a machine. Like I think at one point, one of the meteorologists compared it to a lawnmower. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. that's super cool. Mm -hmm. And then there were also sort of these very specific, like one time metaphors that they used. So, um, trying to think of one off the top of my head but uh you know they would compare like the saturated ground to like jello or they'd compare um you know parts of the storm to like pistons firing like the the individual storms within these uh bands of rain um and so they used sort of figurative language as a way to help themselves and help to help others understand the storm at least that's sort of the um the way that we saw it and then the other big part of it that we ended up that ended up sort of Um, sticking out to us was the intense language that they ended up using. And so there were a number of different ways that they would intensify their language. One of them was just by using these sort of very dire descriptors of the storm. So they would describe it as dire. They'd describe it as catastrophic. They'd describe it as, you know, record-breaking or, you know, intense. And that as the storm went on, you saw that they sort of used those types of verbs more and more frequently. Um, And then some other ways that they would do it would they would compare the event uh, they would compare harvey to previous events um, especially events in the houston area so there were a number of flooding events that had occurred in the years before they compared harvey to those eventually they compared harvey to hurricane katrina as the storm became super intense and then eventually as the storm exceeded all sort of previous precedent they ran out of comparisons to use (laughs) so uh, (laughs) that was another interesting way that their language choices changed as the event went on and then let me think the final way that they intensified language was by using sort of these very personal displays of emotion um, and so this occurred especially as they started to see impacts. So, you know, their cars were out in the parking lot flooding or as the water began to enter their studio, they'd start using these very personal displays and saying things like, I've never seen something like this before. I've never had to give advice this dire before um, and sort of making the threat very personal to themselves and to their community. Um, and so it was really uh, kind of a sobering uh, sobering data set to work through just to see how this affected these meteorologists personally. But um, the language that they used, I think, was just uh, super interesting from their personal perspective and from a risk communication perspective. So, Robert, thank you for all that. That was a really good information, and uh, I can't wait to dive more into it, as, yeah. as Castle, I'm sure, is too. Mm-hmm. I was going to take a step back and ask, do you have a background in communications or what brought you to look at this specifically because um it's such a unique topic and i know you said that um you know broadcast meteorologists there isn't that much research into Mm -hmm. the ways that they practice the communication of weather information so um what is your background and really how did you get so interested in this specific topic um yeah so i mean my background is i did my bachelor's degree in meteorology um so i was interested in meteorology from a young age as (laughs) many eventual meteorologists are um And uh, as I went through my bachelor's degree, I sort of became more acquainted with sort of the the social science applications, the, you know, um, that type of research and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, went to AMS a few times and and saw some of those talks and became really very interested in that. And so um, then decided to go to University of Kentucky, where I worked with uh, Dr. Jeanette Sutton. um, And we worked primarily on Twitter data analysis. and we were really focused on the National Weather Service. So 
for my thesis work, I did want to branch out a little bit from that. And that's why I wanted to focus more on the broadcast meteorologist, just because it was sort of a different angle than what I was working on at the time. In thinking about kind of where you got this idea from, like, were you taking any courses in like rhetoric or um, I'm just thinking like what kind of drew you to this kind of specific angle of examining broadcast meteorologists and some of the language they use? There was definitely, I think, a few classes that I took that at least had like elements of rhetoric involved. I didn't take like a specific rhetoric class, but um, yeah, I mean, in terms of looking at their communication choices, I just, um, you know, I I thought that would be sort of a really interesting angle um, and one that, again, hasn't been studied a whole lot. Um, And I also was, was thinking about it as I did this, like I sort of... A lot of times I think when we think about risk communication, we think about it in terms of outcomes, in terms of like, does this change behavioral decision-making? Does this change attitudes? Um, And so this was sort of like a different perspective and saying, how are these meteorologists actually talking about this? And then I would envision that future research could step in and say, do these strategies, do these choices, do they change decision-making? But I just kind of wanted to look at it at this very high level of like, how are people actually mm-hmm. talking about this? Because I think that's a good sort of like baseline understanding that, um, at least in some yeah. contexts, I don't think that we've fully built out yet as a field. No, I think that's a great way of explaining it. And I and I want to kind of step back. And uh, I think the qualitative approach that you took was really impactful in being able to explore some of those questions you had. Right. Um, so I was curious if you could kind of explain to kind of people that might be listening what Mm -hmm. a qualitative approach is um, Mm -hmm. and how it's kind of different from a quantitative approach and what that might look like. Right. So with qualitative approaches, uh, at least the way I think about it, is you're more interested in sort of like finding sort of the deeper meaning and creating sort of these rich descriptions of what is of of some sort of phenomenon. And so in this case, like the, the qualitative approach involved Um, We started with this massive data set. And so the first step is just sort of going through it and listening and and transcribing the whole thing. Um, And then sort of coming up with this sort of initial list of ideas of what was important. And so that was something that, um, you know, I did, but then I was working with a team of collaborators. And so they had sort of their own ideas of what was important. And we were able to sort of Mm -hmm. iterate through this and come up with sort of broad contours of what we thought was interesting and what uh, we wanted to look at deeper. And so then we sort of developed a very broad initial coding scheme. And so we went through that data and looked for instances of sort of these specific figurative approaches or intense language approaches. Um, And then you just sort of keep combing through the data over and over again, um, looking for linkages between these codes and linkages between these different ideas and sort of trying to pull them together into sort of like a thematic map so that you could sort of understand in a really deep and rich way what you're looking at. And so you're able to sort of construct a narrative based on what is in your data. And so, I mean, I just think that that, especially for a question like this, which um, again, um, is very like open-ended and trying to understand something that has not been looked at in a whole lot of detail already. I think that that's like, it's a very good way to look at it if you're looking at data where you don't really know what you're looking for going into it. And I have a a very serious love-hate relationship with qualitative <laughs> research. It um, is a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work. Oh, yeah. and, and people, I, I don't think they give it enough credit sometimes mm-hmm. just because it's, Sure, your sample size is smaller, but you are 
or the number of people that you talk to or the number of things that you look at is smaller. Mm -hmm. But it's 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 really hard to go super deep on all those uh, people that you've talked to or all those right. videos that you've watched, you know. So I don't think it gets enough credit sometimes. Uh, but I do love it because it helps answer questions that haven't been thoroughly explored, kind of like you just mentioned. Right. Um, and that's when you do, when you don't know where to start, you don't know where to look to begin with, like qualitative mm -hmm. approach is where it's at because you really get to dig your toes in and, right. and really think about this very conceptually, but also like, like you said, kind of putting all those different themes together. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really cool. I'm glad that you did this approach and I'm glad that we're highlighting it. I, I can't, I don't <laughs> think we've ever talked about qualitative on the podcast. Not man. as much. Yeah, yeah, not as much. And, you know, I think the cool thing about qualitative data is it's such a really rich and deep type of data right. that you can really look at it in so many different ways. You don't have to just have yeah. one perspective in that data. You can look at it and attack it from different angles mm -hmm. and get so much information for whatever research you're trying to do. So, um, and yeah, and doing qualitative data, yeah, it's exhausting to comb <laughs> through the interviews, comb through the audio, the right. transcripts, yes. or coding different things. But dang, it's so worth it to see all the great, rich information you can pull from that type of data. So mm -hmm. um, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we had so much data, I probably could have written four papers about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's another good thing, though, right? Like, you have all this stuff. Mm -hmm. People, I mean, I've had things where I've like, oh, I have a new research question, and I can go back and look through the data that right. I already have and try to explore that question, even though it wasn't like one that I specifically had when I collected the data. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another like benefit to qualitative data. It's just, it's literally so rich that you could spend years and years and years Absolutely. just like combing through it. Absolutely. Yeah. So Robert, I'm looking through your literature reviews. So you're looking at different um, previous research to kind of help provide a foundation mm -hmm. for the, the work you're looking into the uh, broadcast meteorologists and their language. Right. So I see the two terms sense making and mm -hmm. sense giving. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on what those two terms mean and how that relates to what you looked at for your research. Right. So um, I believe a lot of the sense making literature originates out of um, crisis communication, which is related to risk communication, but a little bit different. And um, I think uh, sense-making just sort of refers to the way that we make sense of things. There's a hard way to describe it without using the words in it. But, um, <laughs> sure. Um, I think one of the, the, the really early and important studies in this was um, the study of these firefighters during this um, big fire event. And so when you're making sense of an event, a lot of times you're going to rely on sort of your previous experience. You're going to rely on, you know, the team around you, you're going to rely on, um, you know, sort of your preconceived notions going into an event. And so what happened with these firefighters is they went into this event with these preconceived notions, everything broke down, their communication with their team got cut off. And so they lost the ability to make sense of the situation. And when you run into those situations in which sense making is lost, it becomes like this very difficult thing to overcome when you're in sort of a risk and crisis situation, because now you don't have anything to like tie back to, you don't have any reference points. And so um, I thought that that was a really sort of interesting angle to pull this research into just because that sort of loss of sense making really seemed to echo what happened with these broadcast meteorologists um, in terms of, you know, 
they start they start talking about how this storm is beyond what what has been experienced and how they don't have any reference points anymore to describe it. And so I thought that the sense making angle made sense as a way of understanding the experiences that they were sort of going through as this event unfolded and how that was manifest in their language. And then sense giving is just sort of like an extension of that, where not only are they making sense of the situation for themselves, but they're also making sense of it for their communities and for their viewers and customers and listeners. Um, and so it's sort of an interesting question. If the people who are tasked with making sense of the storm can no longer make sense of it, then what happens to the people who are relying on them to make sense of the storm? And so that's um, sort of an unanswered question of our research, but something that would certainly be interesting to look at in future research. I, when, yeah, when I was reading um, <clears throat> some of the work that some of your thesis work, I had never come across those terms before. So I was really excited to learn more <laughs> about those. So that's a really cool um, aspect of being able to pull that in, because I think it makes total sense. Like broadcast meteorologists are that public face of mm -hmm. weather. They are the ones that take the really complicated forecast and translate it to their audience and to members of the public so in right. essence they are making sense of the forecast for people and individuals mm -hmm. um so i think that's a really cool angle to to bring into the mix there yeah i don't know how much it's been conceptualized in risk communication but uh yeah certainly um it was an interesting way to sort of pull everything together um, so in kind of going back to the key findings that you kind of elaborated on at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that there were like several different themes or different types of uh, uh, big words and things that broadcast meteorologists use, that being like figurative language or like analogies, which right. you kind of uh, discussed. Um, but the one that I, that kind of caught my attention the most were affective appeals. Right. Um, so that being using different or e trying to evoke different emotions or using emotion in order to persuade someone mm -hmm. to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, uh, maybe could you elaborate a little bit more on that and maybe talk about some of the emotions that you saw broadcasters using the most? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so certainly we saw a lot of sort of concern, <laughs> Um, as would be expected. Um, a lot of that was manifest even before the storm made landfall. I think, um, you know, I think the meteorologists were well aware that this was going to be a really, really devastating event. And so in sort of that pre-storm phase, they were talking to, you know, saying things like, I cannot stress enough that this is going to be a really dire critical situation. So they, at, before the event, they were sort of making sense of it in that term and trying to prepare people for what was coming. Um, that concern continued throughout the event. So a lot of ways that concern was um, was communicated was through the protective action advice that they were offering. So one of the more like powerful ways, more powerful like uh, protective action advice statements that we saw was one of the meteorologists said, "It's going, you know, if you go to your attic and it floods." then that's going to turn into a coffin corner if you don't have an axe to cut yourself out. So, um, wow. yeah, some really very dire advice and dire language that they ended up using. Um, and then we also saw that concern sort of like towards the end of the broadcast where they were now that concern had shifted from, you know, sort of this hypothetical concern to this very like legitimate concern for their well-being and for their community's well-being. So concern was consistent throughout um, changed sort of in where it was targeted. Um, the other emotion that we saw a lot was disbelief, as I sort of mentioned. So, you know, using words like unbelievable or crazy. And then, right. um, as I mentioned, sort of talking about this storm and saying, 
you know, this is something we've never experienced and this is, you know, beyond like what we've experienced and, um, you know, describing their forecasts as crazy or describing the flooding as crazy. Um, and then uh, I guess we also did see a little bit of hope, especially towards the end. So I think there was one meteorologist who kind of kept repeating, you know, we're going to get through this. We've gotten through these previous disasters. Um, you know, we're going to get through Harvey. Um, that wasn't expressed a lot and it really wasn't expressed much until the very end of it, but it was there. And I think that was sort of these meteorologists trying to offer whatever emotional support they could to their community. Right. Yeah. And probably trying to like cope with it themselves, like trying to just like, they've been doing this for like almost a 24 hour period. They're like, there has to be like, we're hoping that this is, uh, there's (laughs) like some like resolution to this, you know, Mm because especially, especially the, the, station that you looked at in particular because they were so affected by the hurricane harvey itself um so i was excited to see that because i do a lot of stuff with fear pills and thinking about Mm -hmm. um how how we use that in weather um Mm -hmm. that being kind of using concern and uh that kind of stuff um i was curious if there were any other kind of emotion appeals that came out that maybe weren't like consistent or like you know they did they didn't happen often but like you saw one here or there um so like for instance when i was taking courses on um persuasion communication one that was always jumped out to me and was really interesting to me were like guilt and shame appeals Mm. um and i think we see some of those instances in both like social media and broadcast meteorology i remember one in particular um it was about like going out and getting supplies for a hurricane and people, they were trying to like guilt people into feeling bad about not preparing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was curious if any other kind of emotional appeals showed up, maybe less repetitive or um, maybe not as kind of poignant or forward thinking as some of the right. ones that you pointed out. Um, that did sort of remind me, there was, I think one segment where, the meteorologists were looking at traffic cameras of these sort of flooded roads. And as they were watching this, someone mm-hmm. drove into the water. And so they were sort uh, of yeah. offering a play-by-play of what this vehicle was doing as their car started to float and they lost control of it. And also sort of shaming the driver and using that as like a persuasive tool to tell people, you know, mm-hmm. don't go out. Don't, if you have to go out, don't drive onto flooded highways or else this will happen to you. Um, so that was something that sort of reminded me. Yeah. Hey, so Robert, I had a question. When you looked at the different video and the data, um, did you look at the different meteorologists that worked at that station and how everyone had a different style mm. um, and compare and contrast them at all in the research? Um, I mean, so we didn't like articulate that when I wrote the paper, but that was certainly, they certainly did have different styles. Um, some were more, had more of a, like a flair for the dramatic. Um, a lot of the like the really intense like uh, protective action advice came from one meteorologist in particular. So there were definitely like differences in how they communicated. It's just interesting because like this is like we're trying in my mind, we're trying to do research in order to like better understand how broadcast meteorologists like use language to convey information to people. Right. But 
we also have to remember that they are a person that they right. have their own special way of doing things mm-hmm. so like trying to capture that while also like collecting a mass amount of like information on broadcasters <laughs> and how they communicate just seeing it's you know it, it kind of like combat each other in a way mm-hmm. um but i think it's really interesting to think about that conundrum of like how do we capture something that is really important but also very personal at the same time right and that's where i think again using like a qualitative approach helps with that because we can sort of see for sure um at least i think you know in the final version of our paper included just like uh you know who said what and so you could look at it and say well boy all of these all of these seem to be coming from one person who says all these really intense things um and has like you know some of them were more verbose in their figurative descriptions and so um, you know, there are, yeah, it's definitely a challenge in trying to understand not just how broadcast meteorologists communicate as a whole, but how, you know, these individuals sort of, um, put their own flair on it. So with your research, Robert, did you present it to KHOU meteorologists or did you show them what you found? So I, I did reach out to all of the meteorologists, uh, just over email. Um, I only ever heard back from one of them, but he did seem pretty interested in the results and, um, sort of offered me some constructive feedback and uh, really useful like context in terms of understanding why they made some of the choices that they made. Um, and so that did end up hmm. sort of at the, the final paper that we're working on now to submit to a journal. So um, that was really super okay, helpful. Cool. Yeah. Because I know a lot of times in the broadcasts uh, for different TV stations, they'll have um, people who do consultations. They'll have mm-hmm. um, different companies that will come through and kind of show them, hey, this is kind of the way you might want to think about presenting Mm. the weather, or these are the words that you might want to do. Or I remember at one point when I used to work at a station, they even said, hey, you might want to give a dramatic pause of one or two seconds Mm. every now and then to really hit home the point. (laughs) And so, you know, as broadcast meteorologists or or even news reporters, you can take that information and and choose to do what you want to do with it. But it was really interesting to see these so-called experts coming in and evaluating the way that you communicated and then offering you advice and saying, well, you know, maybe try this or try that. Mm. And so I wonder how many people at KHOU were also given that same type of training Mm. um, to kind of inform their style and and what they chose to do and and what they thought to be most effective in uh, their conveying of the dangers of Harvey. Right. Yeah, that's a a super interesting angle for sure. Just thinking about how you would be able to balance those things is just stressful to me (laughs) being able to balance like how you think you should communicate but how other people tell you you should communicate while also like thinking about how we're marketing like how you're communicating and it's just like who we i feel like we don't give mad props to broadcasters enough for the stuff that they have to think about on a daily basis beyond like the importance of conveying life-saving information to people right and that was one of the big takeaways that I at least personally took away from this research was just, I mean, it is almost an impossible task what these broadcast meteorologists have to do, especially when they're put in a situation where their own livelihoods are, are at risk. Um, exactly. it's, hard, it's hard to even imagine how you, you know, keep fighting through that. So speaking of one of the things that you took away, I'm curious, like, what was the most shocking thing or the most the thing that you were most <laughs> surprised about or the most excited to Mm. see the result of um, when you were going through your thesis work? Um, Boy, (laughs) 
I, I just think, um, again, I think like some of the, the really, really dire protective action advice sort of shocked me a little bit. Um, just to hear this meteorologist go up here and say, hey, if you go in your attic and you don't have an axe to cut yourself out, you know, pretty much you're going to die there. Um, just to see like how intense and dire their language got as this event got on. Um, I guess I guess it makes sense that it would go there, but uh, it did sort of catch me off guard a little bit. And then again, just to see like these really, really personal displays of emotion, um, especially towards the end of the broadcast, um, to watch these people sort of, I mean, there was like one really, really poignant scene um, where I think two of the meteorologists were standing out on like the balcony of the studio, broadcasting from there as the water sort of started to flow into their apartment, or not apartment, but their studio. Um, uh, it was just, and they're sort of like, uh, you know, recollecting on their previous experience and recollecting on, you know, how bad the flooding was during Tropical Storm Allison and how this was different and how this was so much worse. And um, it was just like really, really sobering to sort of sit through that and watch that and, and then to watch like the station go off air. And it was just such a crazy, crazy experience that I, I just can't imagine going through it. Did you feel like at any point that it was... I, I'm just trying to think, because I know that in the, the context and some of the stuff that I researched, like it can be very um overwhelming and uh in invasive almost because you're doing it on such a frequent basis so i'm curious like how you it, it made you feel like having to constantly relive this 24-hour period mm-hmm. throughout the process of uh doing the work or did you like for example like um or did you become desensitized to it because i know and this is just like being honest like when i did work with children being forgotten in hot cars like it's a yeah. super tragic thing but because i worked on it for 2 years straight it doesn't really phase me anymore and that that's mm. a terrible thing to admit but it's true because i see it from a purely research perspective now and right. it's just something that was kind of a product of my thesis work so i'm just curious how you how the experience was for you I mean, it was definitely something where I think at least, especially the first few times going through the data where I had to sort of, you know, you have to step away from it every now and then um, and, you know, sort of rebalance yourself because it is, I mean, it's a tough thing to watch. Um, I think even, so the first time I watched through it, there was sort of this additional segment at the end where the the studio had lost contact um, and they were stuck broadcasting it was just this one like reporter so this was not a broadcast meteorologist part of it um, but um, it was just this one reporter who was sort of out by themselves they couldn't contact the station and the station was evacuated and so they were just stuck on air for like 40 minutes straight Um, and so that was something else too but um, yeah I think like they had to help a truck driver like get out of their vehicle or else they were gonna like the water was encroaching around their vehicle. Oh my gosh. So at least I only had to watch that like the once, <laughs> but, um, right. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do think, I think over time you do get a little bit desensitized to it and just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, you approach it as like, this is an academic pursuit. It's time to put on my academic brain <laughs> and relate to this right. in, in, in those sorts of terms and just like understand it as a, phenomenon worth studying and not necessarily get um as involved with it but yeah that definitely i mean i think it probably took a few goes through it to to adopt that sort of mindset towards it but 
yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. Thinking about this work, um, I'm curious, like how you envision like the practical implications of it, or what you would like broadcast meteorologists to take away from the work that you've done, um, and just kind of think about like how this might influence both future work, as Min's question was, but also maybe some uh, practices or things that meteorologists, broadcast meteorologists already do today? Um, I mean, so I think immediately, I think it's just, it's very, very useful for broadcast meteorologists and, and other weather communicators to understand how they're communicating, especially in these sorts of situations because it's so off the cuff most of the time. And so I just think having sort of this knowledge of being able to say this is how this event was communicated um, sort of like just like a you know post event you know understanding of that I think is is really really super useful. Um, I think that like future steps could supplement that and 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 uh, add a mm-hmm. lot more sort of like practical value. So you know one of the ideas that I had and that I you know have suggested is you know take sort of these strategies and you know run them through experiments, like complement this with a more quantitative study that says, are these strategies effective? If you tell people in a hurricane situation or in a flooding situation that their attic is a coffin corner, does that lead them to, you know, behave in different ways? Does that change their attitudes towards the event? Um, And so in that way, we could know not only how these broadcasters are communicating, but, um, you know, whether those communication tactics are effective. And that could, you know, certainly inform how other weather communicators communicate um, during future events. So um, that's sort of where I see the practical value. Although, yeah, I mean, there's, I think it's just practically important to understand the role of broadcast meteorologists during this event, too. And I think our research goes a long way towards explicating that as well. And if it does anything, it does one thing really well of really understanding and diving deep of like, how what broadcasters go through when they're forced to do like this high impact 24-hour wall-to-wall coverage you know um we we just don't get to get to experience that as Mm -hmm. both what people um as like entities of the weather enterprise but also as like members of the public ourselves right um we see these individuals as like the face but we don't really get to see or feel the emotion or like the person behind that face. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that this does a really good job of that. Um, So I was really, I I loved the, um, the use of YouTube um, that you used Mm. in your methods in order to gain the kind of gain access to the life of a broadcast meteorologist in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of in in essence, kind of like a little bit of observation uh, methodology too, a bit. Right. Um, So I was curious if you could elaborate or talk more to the idea of using YouTube videos as like your data collection Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe some of the benefits and challenges that arose through that process. Because I think more people should do it, but I also don't want to like suggest it (laughs) if it was like a nightmare. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Like you said, I think using YouTube data um, is like... I, I mean, I think it's certainly ripe for future exploration just because if those videos are out there, then you know you can have hours and hours of data that you can comb through. Um, the only problem with it is access. So sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, so for instance, a lot of the live broadcasts, um, you know, they may get deleted after they're finished or, you know, they may be 
you know, they may have just not recorded to YouTube. Like a lot of these stations, I think now maybe do broadcasts on Facebook Live, and I don't think those are as easily accessible. So uh, okay. um, that's sort of a problem. But um, I think there are other ways to do this too. So uh, we actually, um, in the following, in 2018, uh, Hurricane Florence was threatening, and we thought, well, maybe we should try to, you know, sort of find our own way to like record this so that it's available. And so we were able to use like Twitch streaming to um, record from mm-hmm. uh, a web browser and then save that like you know to our personal hard drives. Um, and so that is like another option. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways I think to access it and then to use it. So yeah, I, I think it's a very useful way to understand this. And especially in our case, you know, we were able to find sort of these consecutive videos over a 24 hour period. So I, I think we lucked out a little right. bit that we were able to get that data. Yeah. But, um, certainly, especially if that data is out there, I think it's really, really useful, especially for this type of analysis. No, I agree. And I think it's like a super novel approach that we need to do more of. And that's why I was like super curious about how the process was for Mm -hmm. you. Um, But yeah, I've learned eerily, weirdly, um, a lot about like using copyrighted video for academic purposes. (laughs) Um, So one of the professors that I uh, worked with in a lot of her work, she uses narrative communication. So she uses a lot of like uh, Grey's Anatomy and mm. like Sex in the City. Um, she uses those clips and, and, and tries to figure out how the storylines and the plot lines influence people's attitudes about a given subject. Mm. Um, so, for example, if they talk about like legalizing marijuana, for example, mm. on uh, like a, a, a regular um, TV show, like how does the person, how does their, their relationship with a main character influence their position on that uh, topic? Right. And so I was super curious because I was like, how are you getting access to Grey's Anatomy and chopping it up <laughs> and showing it to people? That seems like it would be copyright. And she's like, anything, you can do anything for academic purposes. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but I think getting back to your study, I think that sounds really cool. And other people should definitely explore that as a means of kind of getting that observational viewpoint into broadcast meteorologists. Because I think, like you mentioned, a lot of the reasons why we can't really study them um, or we uh, have trouble getting access to their footage, um, it really prevents a barrier for us being able to kind of explore the ways that they communicate. So I think that that is a really novel approach for doing it, and hopefully other people will do it more in the future. (laughs) That would be good, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the last thing I will mention, and it it reminded me... um, when I was reading uh, and watching your, your AMS presentation, which we'll definitely post on our website, um, at the end you mentioned that one of the kind of practical takeaways from uh, this project, and you kind of alluded to it in your previous answer, but is kind of the creation of a lexicon for broadcast meteorologists to kind of access and kind of understand the ways that other broadcast meteorologists are kind of conveying and communicating information to people Mm -hmm. so i was wondering if you could kind of elaborate a bit on that topic and then i'm gonna ask you another question after that okay (laughs) um yeah i mean i just think you know this this study could really be used as a starting point again just to understand the ways that these broadcast meteorologists communicate and so then we can look at sort of the individual strategies or choices that they made and say 
you know, okay, so coffin corner, you know, advice. That's a strategy. Um, framing Harvey is a monster. That's a strategy. And those are things that, you know, you can sort of add to this growing list of ways that um, these things can be communicated. And then, you know, sort of as I mentioned, you test those, you see whether they're actually effective. Um, and then you sort of have a toolkit of, you know, language choices. And again, obviously, you want to make room for, um, broadcasters to exercise their own sort of personal flair, but it could certainly be used as a guideline to, you know, say, okay, we're dealing with a hurricane threat. What are some examples of other ways that broadcast meteorologists or any meteorologists have framed these events? And maybe we could lead on that in our coverage um, because it seems to hit a chord with their viewers or something like that. Um, that's sort of the idea behind it. And the reason that it caught my attention is because you said it could lead to more consistency in mm -hmm. the way that we communicate um, weather information. And that's always a hot button topic for it, me. It so, is, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your talks today of us too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like that you mentioned that and you brought that up. But I was going to ask you, like, what are the caveats of like, mm -hmm. uh, for like free will and stuff? But you just answered it beautifully <laughs> in your previous response about making sure they still have their flair uh -huh. and they can still do what they want to do. So I'm glad that you are distinguishing consistency from uniformity. It right. makes me very happy. <laughs> Uh, Min, that's all the questions that I have. Do you have any other questions for Robert? No, I think this was great. I think uh, this research is fantastic, and I am super excited to see what further research it spurs and to go down this route of understanding how we can really move the needle forward in terms of communication in the weather enterprise, especially with our uh, really important, hardworking broadcasters who do such a good job day in and day out. I love talking about it, so I'm glad for the opportunity. <laughs> of course. We're so happy to have yeah, you. Awesome. Thank you again for coming on the show. <laughs> Should we ask? Um, <laughs> I love saying that. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's not really a show, but it makes me feel like a talk show host. Um <laughs> Um, should we, um, ask him, should we say like, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, is that a thing that we should do? Oh yeah. That'd are, be great. Are you places where people can yeah. find you on the internet? Uh, I am on Twitter. Like on, I hardly Twitter. ever use it, but, um, I can plug it. So it's at Rob W X P R E S T on Twitter. So if you want to give him a follow or... <laughs> slide into his dms ask him some questions in those dms men about this project yes about, about research, research. <laughs> uh, you can definitely do that <laughs> awesome um well thank you so much for being on robert um and we really appreciate it to be on thank you for inviting me you can find us in a variety of places, including facebook.com slash weatherhype and weatherhypepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at weatherhype, both words, weather and hype, or send us an email at weatherhype at gmail.com. We love for you to leave us a review, so feel free to do that on iTunes or any other platform where you listen to the podcast. We'd love to just hear your feedback and appreciate it very much. Uh, until next time. Until next time. Stay hyped. Stay hyped. <laughs> As bright lights flash and freedom of crash If you see me around, it's only to take the high score back 
Change is a hard trade in this arcade. And I'm back to coffee by the time the stars fade. Who's that hot chain working down at the spy house? Got eyes.